Welcome, welcome to the good old days of radio show. This is John Tefteller, your host. We are here every Tuesday and Thursday with the very best in old time radio for a modern audience. And by that, I mean we select shows to play for you that I believe hold up. The writing is good, the acting is good, the performances, everything about them is just first class. And that way you can tell your friends who did not live through the good old days of radio that they can listen to something and it doesn't sound dated or poorly written or anything. It's, it's right up there with the very best of television or film. It's just a different medium. And we are in week two of a salute to Miss Lucille Fletcher. For those of you who don't know who Lucille Fletcher was, you got eight more weeks to hear about her, and you're going to know more than I know by the time we're finished, or we'll all know the same thing together. And I have a special guest with me for the series of Lucille Fletcher Tributes. He's Mr. Don Ramlow from Michigan, and he was fortunate enough to be able to meet Lucille Fletcher towards the later years of her life and interview her, and um, he has some interesting things to tell us about Lucille Fletcher, because I know nothing other than the great plays that she wrote. So we covered some of her history last week. To recap, she was born in 1912, began working for CBS Radio in the late 30s. She was married to Bernard Herrmann, the famous movie composer. That's that's where we left off. Last week we had My Client Curly, uh, first appeared in 1940. And this week we turned to her work on the Columbia Workshop. Columbia Workshop was a very famous dramatic show that aired in the 30s and into the 40s. This particular one is called Something Else and has Martin Gable as the star. Martin Gable was with Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre Players. But let's, uh, let's bring on Don Ramlow here. And Don, tell us what you know that we need to know before listening to today's play, which is uh, something, Someone Else. What, what do you know about Lucille Fletcher and this particular play? Well, like you, this is, show is one I've not had heard before, so it's a pleasant surprise uh, to be uh, listening to this. And what I think I took away from uh, listening to it just a couple days ago was the fact that you could see the start of Lucille's uh, suspense writing, if you will. There's a lot in here that I think she really expands on theme-wise in some of her later plays, and I found that interesting to listen to how some of this uh, material started out with her as she was writing and developing these stories. So I think that's a good intro for this show, then that we can maybe have some comments of what you think uh, okay. uh, later on. Just a Play. question for you then, because you, you, <laughs> I've kind of put you on a pedestal here as the Lucille Fletcher expert, <laughs> but this is July 20th, 1942. Was Miss Fletcher's first horror-type uh, show the Hitchhiker, was that the first kind of creepy show that she did? Do you know? A long, sorry, wrong number, yes. Well, Absolutely. sorry, wrong number is 1943. The Hitchhiker was first aired in 1942 on Suspense, and it would actually be just a few months after this. It was in September of 1942, and this particular show is July 20th, 1942. Right, and I think, as I mentioned, uh, her Hitchhiker, of course, which you've already done, was a magnificent script, and certainly in '43 when she followed up with "Sorry, Wrong Number," of which a lot of people consider one of her finest scripts. And this one kind of falls in between those, and I think uh, shows her development 
of a theme, if you will. I think in a lot of her stories uh, that she's put together, her scripts, uh, it has to do with people kind of thinking they're losing their mind. You know, <laughs> why is this happening to me? You know, wh- why am I this victim, you know, okay. in this particular situation? And I c- kind of get a little hint of that in this particular story. Okay. So it was, The Hitchhiker was her first kind of creepy story, as far as you know. That is correct. As far as my knowledge goes, yes. Okay. And this one is headed that way, so maybe this was the first. We'll see. I'll let you know what I think of it at the end of this. This is the Columbia Workshop from July 20th, 1942, Someone Else. The Columbia Workshop presents Someone Else by Lucille Fletcher with Martin Gable. asked me this morning at breakfast if there was someone else. And I knew at last that you sensed a little of what has happened to me. I wanted to answer you then, but I couldn't. Now I must tell you, darling. There is someone else. Something else. And it's been driving me half crazy now for months. It's a madness. A nameless, terrible nostalgia of the blood. It's taken my mind from my work, from this house, from you. Yet it's not living. I still love you and only you more than anything in the world. I say in the world. For this thing that has me in its power is beyond you and me. Beyond life itself. It began one rainy night. Less than a year ago. It was your bridge night. You'd ask me to stay in New York and have dinner out. I ate alone, and then, since it was still early, I went for a walk down Madison Avenue. I got as far as 56th Street. Then it began to rain harder, and I stepped into one of the shop doorways for shelter. It was an antique shop, and she was in the window. Darling, have you ever been in a strange city pushing your way through a crowd and seen a face that was for a moment hauntingly familiar? Or have you perhaps glimpsed someone you were sure you knew and realized only after that person had passed by that it was someone who had died years and years ago? That was the feeling I had that night when I stared in through the glass at her face. And yet she was only a little porcelain figure, a Dresden shepherdess, no taller than my hand. It was a sad face, a face singularly full of indefinable tragedy. And though small, the features had a distinctness, an actual expression. No one looking on that face could ever forget it. But it was the old familiarity that haunted me. The overwhelming sense 
that I had seen that face somewhere long ago. I stood there trying to capture the association a long time after the rain stopped. I was still thinking about it when I came home that night to Maplewood. Yes. Come on in. We're just having refreshments. I fucked cake and everything. I saved your piece. Thanks just the same, darling, but I'm kind of tired. If you don't mind, I'll just go upstairs to bed. Somehow I didn't want to go into that living room and see the girls all sitting around the bridge tables eating gooey slabs of icebox cake. And for the first time in my life, I didn't want to see you. I wanted to be alone. All night long, the feeling of recognition kept recurring like a name on the tip of my tongue. But I got nowhere with it. Well, you know how it is with a little thing like that. At noon the next day, I went up to the store and took another look at her. The familiarity was even stronger. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. May I help you? Uh, yes, if you don't mind. It's rather curious, but you know that shepherdess you have in the window? The Meissen shepherdess? Mm. The one with the uh, basket of pink roses uh, and the three-cornered hat. It's funny, but I seem to have seen her before. We got it from Europe two weeks ago. It came oh. over on a convoy from England. It's from the collection of the Earl of Faversham. I see. It's a very rare piece. Uh, would you be interested in pricing it? Oh, no, thank you. Thanks just the same. Well, thank you for your trouble. Oh, no, thank you. I put it out of my mind. Until one night, two weeks later. Uh, what time is it, dear? I don't know. About 9.30. Oh, good. I don't want to miss it. Oh, wait till I turn on the radio. Miss what? The Yummy Crackles program. Don't you remember? It's Tuesday night. Oh, yes. I don't want to miss that myself. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Darling... What's that? What, dear? That tune they're playing. I've heard it somewhere before. Have you? It's pretty, isn't it? Pretty. Hmm. It must be on the exploring music program. That always comes before Yummy Crackles. They'll probably tell what it is in a few minutes. I'd heard it before. I'd heard this tune a hundred times before, and yet I couldn't tell its name or where I'd heard it. I knew only that it was somehow connected with a palace, a blaze of candlelight, a gold staircase carpeted with red velvet, and windows, countless long high windows beyond which in the darkness fireworks like great roses were bursting. But most of all, it was connected in my mind with her that lovely, tragic, porcelain face. You have been listening to Exploring Music, another in the weekly series of concerts. I'd heard it somewhere before, and she had been with me. In some way, it was associated in my mind with 
love and grief. And excerpts from Aristide Dubois' pastoral opera, Diana and Hercules. Aristide Dubois. But, Verdon, what's the matter? Dubois. I know that name. You're so pale all of a sudden. Here, sit down. I'll get you a glass of water. No, thank you, darling. Do we... Whom do we know named Dubois? Why, no one, dear. No one I know. It's just an 18th century composer's name. Why, I've heard it before on the radio. It isn't that. I know a man named Dubois. He's huge. Ugly. Has a wart on his lower lip. A little... Little pig-like eyes. He has two daughters. Extremely conceited with a violent temper. That's it. Gosh, I don't know what's the matter with me. You're tired out, dear. You're just tired out after the end of a long, hard day. Now you lie down for a while. Oh, here's Yummy Crackles now. Presenting Yummy Crackles. Turn it off, Elizabeth, please. But, darling, I thought... Turn it off. You hear me? Can't a man even think for a minute without having to listen to that loud... There. I thought you said the program was funny. I thought you said you liked it. I sat there with my head in my hands. Your words, Elizabeth, had had no effect on me. I sat there and it was just as if I wasn't sitting in the parlor at all. But somewhere else. Out in the night on a stone balustrade, perhaps. Or at the edge of some enormous fountain. I was sitting there waiting for something to happen to me. For someone to come. I was waiting for her. The next day I went back to that antique shop. As a man might go to a rendezvous. Mr. LaFleur? Yes? Uh, there's a gentleman waiting to see you. Oh, yes. Uh, good afternoon, monsieur. Good afternoon. Is there anything I can do for you? Yes. That shepherdess in the window. I want to inquire about it. I want to know everything there is to know. You wish to uh, purchase her, monsieur? Well, no, I hadn't thought about that, but I just... Because oh. if you are interested, monsieur, I warn you, you must make up your mind quickly. There happens to be another gentleman very, very interested in that shepherd. Another gentleman? Yes, you have heard of Monsieur Fischer, Ludwig Fischer. Uh, he's the greatest collector of mice in the world, monsieur. And only this morning he was in here personally to examine that shepherdess. Why, at any moment... You mean it's, he... uh, it's valuable? Valuable? Monsieur, that little figure is one of the rarest pieces of mice in China in existence. It was made by the great mice artist Kendler himself. Kendler, who's he? I never heard of him. A very, very great artist, monsieur. He was the leading sculptor of all mice and porcelain from 1731 to 1775. This little piece was made sometime around 1775. You collect mice and porcelain, no? Um, no. As a matter of fact, I've never even heard of it before. Oh, monsieur. What a pity. I was just passing by this store the other night, and her face... Well, it looked just like uh, someone I knew. But I don't suppose if it's uh, 
that old, it could look like anybody I've ever known. Oh, who knows, monsieur? Perhaps a painting of the period you have seen and forgotten. Or a well-known lady of the 18th century. The mice and artists sometimes used leaving models. But let us take her from the window and examine her. No, really, closely. thank you very much. Oh, but... it's quite all right. Uh, here she is. Uh, faces are strange things, are they not? Resemblances? Huh. What makes resemblances? A nose, an eye, a mole on the chin? May I take her, please? Le Fleur's antique shop. Oh, oh yes. Oh, one moment, please. It's Mr. Fisher, Mr. Lafleur. He wants to speak to you about that shepherd. Ah, yes, if you will excuse me. Just a moment. Before you go, Mr. Lafleur, how much is she? I will be with you in a minute, monsieur. Mr. Fisher... Tell him you can't have her. I want her. She... She is... $350, monsieur. $350? Three... That would have bought you a fur coat, Elizabeth. Paid two years of taxes on our house in Maplewood. Given us a vacation trip to South America. $350 $350 was almost four weeks' salary. But I was like a man in a dream. The thing in my hand wasn't porcelain. It was something alive. Something terribly close and precious to me. I couldn't give it up, ever, to anybody. Mr. Fisher is waiting for me, monsieur. Uh, what shall I tell him? Tell him and his collection to go to the devil. This shepherdess is mine. I took a walk that afternoon through Central Park. I was excited in a curious, have-to-find way. And now that I had her in my pocket, this precious, sad, beautiful thing, everything about me seemed sordid and ugly. I came home at last, but I had no sooner come there than I wanted to run away again. Our little house looked so bare and cold and dreary. I'd planned to show you the shepherdess to break down and tell you... But, darling, when you came to the door, forgive me, you seemed suddenly like a stranger. Elizabeth, it was a malady. It was something I couldn't resist. You must understand that. You've known me for ten years. Have I ever been a nervous man, a jittery man? And yet, from that day forward, all sorts of little things began to drive me crazy. There was the telephone, for example. I jumped every time it rang as though it was something new and unfamiliar. They were the auto horns. Suddenly they seemed twice as loud and terrifying. There was the incessant, irritating drone of airplanes in the sky. The dusty clatter of subways. Everything in the world seemed to be growing harsher and more jarring. I was happy only when I was alone. In very quiet places, in very old places, like the still stone rooms of the Metropolitan Museum or the graveyard of St. Paul's. I was happy only with old things. With clocks, all grimy with dust, with pewter candlesticks with furniture from which the gilt and paint had long since fallen away. I began to buy these things, secretly, to lay them away where she was hidden, 
under a pile of old clothes in the front part of our attic. I began to read books that brought me nearer these things. Books on the 18th century. I haunted antique stores, auctions, old houses. And last night, Elizabeth, at an auction, I discovered for sure how deep my malady really lay. And now we come to item number 35. A handsome so-called Lowestoft plate of the 18th century. Slightly cracked with a design of blue and yellow cloth. I had dropped in at the Park Bernay Galleries. They were holding an auction that night of 18th century China. I'd been standing at the back of the room for about half an hour when somebody tapped me on the shoulder. Uh, good evening. I turned around. Before me stood an old man with thin, rather long white hair and nose glasses. I'd never seen him before. My name is Fisher, Ludwig Fisher. We have met before, no? I'm sorry, I don't quite recall. My name's Simpson, Burton Simpson. Mr. Simpson? Are you not the gentleman who purchased the little Meissen Shepherdess in Lefleur's antique shop six months ago? Well, yes, I am. Ah, then pray permit me to introduce myself once more, Mr. Simpson. I am Ludwig Fischer, your rival for that charming piece. I, too, collect Meissen, and I, too, wish to buy her. Well, I'm... Glad to meet you. And I, you, I have always had a great, a very great curiosity to meet the gentleman who purchased that delightful and most curious little work of art. Curious? But uh, shall we go outside, Mr. Simpson? It is very warm in here and uh, not good for speaking. Or do you wish to bid on that foolish sport? Uh, no, I wasn't bidding. Good. Uh, I perceive you have good taste in more ways than one. You uh, collect Meissen, Mr. Simpson? No, not exactly. Just that one piece. Uh-huh. Rather curious. You are knowing that I bought that shepherdess. Even remembering my name so many months afterward. Oh, not at all. Uh, Mr. Lefleur told me your name. And uh, the little shepherdess which you purchased is one of the rarest things of its kind in existence. I am attached to it for many reasons. That is why, uh, naturally, I would be interested to know who snatched her away from me. Snatched her? Oh, please, sir. Do not misinterpret me, Mr. Simpson. I feel no resentment toward you. To the victor belong the spoils. But uh, that little shepherd, this is one of the most famous figurines ever made. Ah. Uh, excuse me, are you uh, walking my way, Mr. Simpson? Uh, I don't know. I haven't anything to do this evening. Uh, I live on 58th Street near the river. If you uh, care to, I have uh, histories, a great deal of interesting information at home. I'll walk you over. Uh, excellent. I had the feeling, even as we started down 57th Street, with its lighted shops, its hurrying people... I had the feeling that I was on the brink of something sinister and frightening. It was raining, a thin drizzle. The same kind of rain that had fallen on that night when I had first seen her. Uh, you say then, Mr. Simpson, you know nothing, uh, absolutely nothing about the marvelous little work of art which you have purchased? 
Nothing except what Mr. Lafleur told me. And uh, what was that? That she was made by Kendler, I think it was. Sometime around 1775. Oh, She was made by Kendler, that is right, but he told you nothing more? No. That shows you how much these art dealers know. She was the last thing ever to be made by Kendler, the great Meissen artist, before he died. Oh, I see. She was to have been his his masterpiece, his his swan song to the world. I say, was to have been. That is the rather tragic thing about your shepherdess, Mr. Simpson. The art piece of which she was to have been a part was never carried through. The dream of the artist was never finished. I don't quite understand you. No, no, you would not, perhaps, unless you knew the story. Uh, have you never heard of uh, Aristide Dubois? Dubois? Oh, Dubois, yes, I have. He's a composer. Plays the harpsichord and has two daughters. He was an obscure composer of the 18th century, and he had two daughters, that is right. You have heard, perhaps, of the... Uh, Younger one, uh, Antoinette. Antoinette. Uh, uh, she was named for the Queen of France, and uh, according to 18th century history, she was three times as beautiful. Now, you do not know her story in its own way. It is a very famous one. Uh, but then, if you are not a historian... Oh, please, please, go on. Well, she fell in love when she was 18 with a flute player in her father's orchestra. Her father, who had bigger hopes for her, forbade the marriage and sent her off to a convent. She escaped and by various means arrived back at the palace and disguised as a shepherdess. Oh, but uh, here we are. Hmm? Uh, where? Uh, at my house. Uh, come in, won't you, Mr. Simpson? We'd arrived at an old brownstone house set in the middle of a quiet street near the fog-hung river. It was dark. I didn't want to go in. For some reason, I didn't want to hear any more of his story. Yet, something impelled me to follow him. We went up the steep stone stairs into a pitch black hallway. He lit a match. Uh, you will observe, Mr. Simpson, that my whole house is lit with candles. It shows off my collection much better. One by one in that ghostly silent hallway, he lit candle after candle until the whole place was ablaze with light. Then he went into an enormous front parlor. There were candles there, too. And he lit them, and I saw that the room was full of glass cases. Great, tall cabinets in which stood porcelain figurines of every size, shape, and design. In one corner, an old clock ticked. The room was musty. Overpowering, with its countless little toys. And yet, darling, horribly, horribly familiar. Uh, sit down, won't you? Uh, uh, some coffee? No, thank you. You were saying... Oh, yes, yes. I was saying uh, about Dubois' younger daughter, Antoinette. Uh, she escaped from the convent and returned to the palace disguised as a shepherdess. A uh, fancy dress ball was being given. 
Her lover was playing the flute solo in a piece of her father's. It was a great moment for the composer, a, a triumph before all the court. But the flute player recognized his sweetheart. He stopped short in the middle of his solo. He stared, he hesitated. He could not go on. And in that moment, with all the court looking on, the father knew. He turned, saw his daughter, saw double disgrace staring him in the face, and in a mad rage, for he was a violent man and an egotist, he rushed upon the player and struck him to the heart with a ceremonial sword. The daughter... But, Mr. Simpson, you are... You're looking so pale. Shall I open uh, the window? No, no. It's all right. Please go on. You were saying. Well, that's all there is to the story. And quite a famous little bit of 18th century scandal it is. But the, the real point is that Kendler took it as a theme for his, his swan song, his final work of art. Yes. It was the last thing he planned before he died. And a, and a charming conceit it was, too. There were to be the two lovers executed in porcelain. One to stand on, on either side of a fireplace. Antoinette was to be dressed as a, as a shepherdess. And, and the flute player as a shepherd uh, playing the flute. Yes. But only the little shepherdess, uh, the figure that you purchased, Mr. Simpson, was ever finished. Ah. He uh, sketched the two figures in his sketchbook. And in, in a moment, I will show you the old drawings of them he made. But he died before he could create the shepherd. Sad, isn't it? Sad. You know, even in porcelain, those two poor young lovers were never united. No. Only in this little pencil sketch which Kendler made. Only... Uh, in this, uh, were they ever together? Uh, would you like to see the drawing, Mr. Simpson? Please. Uh, the drawing, Mr. Simpson. Ah. Charming, are they ah. not? Is not the drawing uh, like your little shepherdess? Uh, perfect. Perfect in, in every way. Yeah. And, uh... Have you noticed something else, Mr. Simpson? It has just struck me. It is quite amusing how... how very much the, the little shepherd's face... Uh, resembles yours. Uh, you remember how I was sure I knew you at the auction tonight? Well... Oh, but, but where are you going, Mr. Simpson? If you don't mind, I'd like to open the window. Oh, but certainly it really is quite stuffy in here. And then we must have some coffee... Elizabeth, I don't know what it means. I can't explain it. I know only that there's dust upon it and corruption and terrible sadness. I walked last night up and down 57th Street, up and down, trying to fight it, trying to disbelieve the memories but they crowded in on me. The voices, the faces, the very rustle of silks and the smell of tallow and sedan chairs and theaters 
They crowded in. Above the honking of the taxis. The rumble of subways. I saw her world last night. Completely. I felt the pull of her upon me more powerfully than anything I've ever known. But I don't want to go back. If I go back, what will it be to? What? That's what I keep asking myself. Where will it be? Do you think this drivel, Elizabeth? Do you think I need a doctor? Or can you find it in your heart to understand and to forgive me? I need you, darling. Believe me, now more than I've ever needed you before. I don't understand what's happened. But as surely as I know everything I've said is true, I have a feeling we can conquer it. So, darling, do for me what I have not the courage or the heart to do. Go up there quickly. She's in the front part of the attic under a pile of old clothes. Destroy her in any way you wish, but destroy her so that not a fragment of her remains. I warn you that she's beautiful. That she's the rarest bit of mycin in the world. But until she is destroyed forever, the man you call your husband is only dust. And the shadow of a love 200 years old. listening to the Columbia Workshop production of Someone Else by Lucille Fletcher. The part of Simpson was played by Martin Gable. He was assisted by Helen Clare, Margot Stevenson, Stefan Schnabel, Julian Noah, and Carl Emery. The music was composed by the 18th century court musician Andre Compra and conducted by Bernard Herrmann. The entire production was directed by Earl McGill. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, there's uh, Bernard Herrmann uh, doing the score, uh, Mr. Lucille Fletcher. Interesting, that just creepy enough that it qualifies definitely for our Thursday presentations here. I do think that they had one voice in there that uh, should have been recast. The the guy playing the Peter Lorre part, they should have had Peter Lorre doing that because that, that you could hear, at least I could, listening to it, I could hear Peter Lorre reading that just as good, if not better, and would be a more recognizable voice. But maybe Peter Lorre wasn't available to do that show that night. We are here with uh, Don Ramlow. This is John Tefteller, the Good Old Days of Radio podcast. Uh, Don, what are your comments on this show? Well, like I said before, it's definitely a, an intense recording, and it fits in quite nicely with what you're doing with your podcast. I get a few echoes, if you will, early on with the uh, later play of hers called Search for Henri Lefebvre, because this idea of a person listening to the radio, hearing this tune that seems to haunt him a little bit. And so I got a little bit of a, that, like maybe this planted a seed for her later on, uh, when she did the search for Henri Lefebvre. I also couldn't help but note uh, the similarity with Martin Gable and Orson Welles' voice. You know, they both could have played that role easily. 
Yeah, actually, Orson Welles and Peter Lorre. Boy, what an all-star cast that would have been for that. <laughs> no doubt about it. And uh, Mark Gable actually was a member of the Mercury Theater group, sure. too, with Ors. So uh, that kind of all tied in together. So, Okay, a little bit of a question here on uh, Lucille Fletcher. Um, her husband, Bernard Herman, did the music for this. Um, he also did the music for The Hitchhiker on Suspense. Do you know how long they were married? I believe, and don't hold me to this, but I believe they divorced uh, about 1948, okay, about nine years or so after they got married. Okay, and okay. was her maiden name then Fletcher? Her maiden name was Fletcher, absolutely correct. Okay. okay. And then later on, she became known as Lucille Fletcher Wallop, and her husband was the, an author himself, and he wrote the book upon which the popular play Damn Yankees was based on. Okay, so she did remarry uh, at least once after Bernard Herrmann. Absolutely, and then that's when they moved into Maryland and stuff uh, with their life. And uh, uh, she had two daughters, and uh, like I said, then they the, the two of them uh, had a divorce, and then a while later she met uh, this uh, Mr. Wallop, and uh, then they became uh, husband and wife for many, many years. All right. Well, this is John Tefteller, the good old days of radio show. Uh, special guest today and for the next few weeks, Don Ramlow, who's a expert of uh, note on Lucille Fletcher and all things suspense and things like that. So he'll be back with us next week. And next week we have another great story by the great Lucille Fletcher. So tune in again for that. Download again for that, whatever the current way of saying it is in this modern world. And uh, I will see you then. Goodbye.